Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Still in 1 Timothy 1, still on page 991 on a Blue Pew Bible. If you did not bring a Bible or don't have one um, on your phone, we'd love for you to follow along uh, with us here. Always love when our church have Bibles open, uh, not just to hear me, but to see what God is saying through his word. And the title of the sermon this morning is Grace Overflowing. Grace overflowing, that is a phrase that, as we'll see in a moment, is extracted from our passage this morning, but it's also a word picture, an image that you can feel more than you can explain. You know what I mean by that? Like, you can see it more than you can say it. When something is overflowing, it, it is outside of our control. You, you, maybe an image of a river that overflows its banks, a, a drink that overflows its cup that it's poured in. Like it is, it, is, it is everywhere now. It is uncontrollable now. You have lost control of the bounds that you thought that this was contained within. Grace overflowing. Like what is the gospel? And the mission of God and the mission of the church in this world, if not, grace overflowing. The uncontrollable love of God that it, it just kind of goes everywhere, right? Like it goes, it gets into everything. It goes to places that you don't expect. It goes to the people that you wouldn't expect. And I, I truly believe and increasingly believe that you cannot understand God, his plan for the world, without grace. So as we prepare to set into our passage, can I ask you simply, do you get grace? Like, do you get it? Um, more than that, can, can you say you have experienced grace? Uh, maybe even more than that, can you say that you were walking in the invitation to walk in grace, but Matt just prayed, and I didn't give him that phrase for his prayer, that you can, you can walk under grace and live under grace. Do you know what that's like? It's a stunning concept that does something to us. It does something, again, that word, uncontrollable within us. And as we will see this morning, when Paul is done writing what he's about to write that we're going to go through, when he writes about grace, he gets to the end and he bursts out in song. Because there are moments in your life when your soul gets so moved by something that words and sentences and periods and commas, they'll no longer do. It just won't do anymore. I can't stay in that realm. And you go into a place and your heart wants to sing. We're going to see that in Paul this morning. I think getting grace is one of those moments. And so my prayer for you all week leading up to this very moment is that your affections will be reawakened to the beauty of the gospel this morning. Reawakened to grace that you would actually be caught off guard. You just thought you were coming to church. Just another Sunday. And make it through. I pray that the Lord would do something mighty in your heart this morning. And if you have not experienced this grace yet, I pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to the beauty to it for the first time. And this comes with a warning. Uh, do you know that you can be in church your whole life and never truly get grace? Countless stories of people who say, I've been around it. I grew up in it all my life. And then the Spirit chose in his providence, to open your eyes to grace for the first time. Could that be you? All right, well, with that set up, we're going to 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17 is our passage this morning. Paul writes, I, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, 
because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we began walking through this letter a few weeks ago. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy has been sent by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And chapter 1, what we're really seeing is the, is the kind of a recap as to the reasons why he's there in the first place. Uh, verses 3 through 7, which we saw a couple weeks ago, Paul told Timothy to exhort those who are teaching false doctrine to stop it. Tell them to stop it. Because they're doing so much damage. They're, they're giving people a bad map has been the kind of image we've been talking about. That this map that they're teaching it has roads that lead to nowhere. And they're going on and on with these wild speculations, and they do nothing. And they lead to nothing. And eventually this church is going to wake up one day in the city they're trying to reach, and they're going to realize that these men who have been teaching them and leading them have been leading them to nowhere. It leads to nothing. So tell them to stop. Last week, verses 8 through 11, he went in on the actual problem in their teaching. And what we saw is that the first and uh, fatal flaw of these false teachers is the mishandling of the law of God. They have posited this law as something to be followed in order to be saved. Do these things, and you will be in right standing before God. Instead of the intended purpose of the law, uh, to reveal the fact that we can't follow it. And to reveal our need for a Savior, like they are doing the exact opposite of what the law has intended to do. And now, in verses 12 through 17, he's going to kind of share the other side of that coin. That when you mishandle the law, and you misteach the law, you keep people blinded to the reality and the beauty of grace. You crowd it out. And you put all these other things in and around it. And now your people can't see the beauty of grace. And it's all about grace. So three points this morning from this passage. Number one, what grace says about God. Number two, what grace says about you. And then number three, what does grace say about others? So starting with number one, what grace says about God. Um, after Paul has said uh, he has been entrusted with the gospel, that's where we left it off last week, he now conveys just how unbelievable that actually is. And so he gives all the glory and gratitude to God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. And so here's where I don't do this often because I don't know Greek, but I know guys who know Greek, and I can study them, and men and women who study Greek. And I think there's some translation things that are helpful to give you the angst that is within Paul. The literal translation in the Greek says, I continually thank. Like, I thank and I keep on thanking. I can't stop thanking him who has given me strength. Like, he just can't get over how abundantly good God is. 
And then, in addition, the literal translation at the end of verse 12 is, he even judged me faithful. Like me, even me, Paul writes. Like he is out of his mind. And we just read it as words on the page and we just go ho-hum and we read it. But like, get yourself in the shoes of him as he's writing this, as he's like, he's like, he judged me faithful, guys, even me. Paul has not gotten over the stunning power of grace. He can't. And I find the more I study, the more I walk with Christ, the more I commit myself to serving as a pastor and making Christ known to others, the more I discover grace. Like the more I have moments where I'm like, oh, I thought I knew what it was. Turns out I still don't know the bottom of the meaning of grace. And I just keep digging into this well, thinking I'm going to hit bottom, right? It's been a few years now. I've been studying for a while now. I'm I'm really going to get it now. And then I keep going and go, nope, thought I hit bottom. Didn't hit bottom. And I'll get to another point. I think this has to be as good as it gets when it comes to grace. Nope. It just gets better. And now I'm beginning to suspect that I'll never hit bottom. That part of maturing in the Christian faith might just be becoming more stunned by that which you already know. God is infinitely gracious to the point where I feel so limited and incapable to try to put words around it for you in a tidy little sermon. Like, I I just, I feel like the the language just fails us to try to really express what grace is and what it means. Um, So I can't do it, but I tried to do it. And so here's my attempt. Um, Grace says God is a giver. Not a taker. Like, like first and foremost, he is a giver. He is an initiator. Like, like, like he's, he's not this force that we have to find and work our way towards. Like, he's hiding from us, and we've got to kind of unlock the code of how to get God and how to make God happy and how to receive blessing from him. But he's a divine being who, who reveals himself to us. You know what that means? It means grace says that God takes the first step. And he takes the first step towards you. And he takes the first step towards all of his people. And that's a theme that we just see over and over and over again in the Bible. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Ruth to Hagar to Hannah and on and on it goes. You know what you see over and over again? God takes the first step towards his people. God is pursuing. He's always pursuing. He is a God to be known. Like, Like if you think about the more famous somebody gets in this world, the harder they are to get in touch with. Like, like, like you, you can't just go find someone's contact info once you get to a certain level of celebrity in this world. There is layers upon layers upon layers to get in front of somebody that you would consider famous. So not only do they not step towards you, you can't really find them. But God is a giver. Uh, Grace also says that God is uncontrollable. He is unpredictable, and most of all, his love is unconditional. Um, he, here's a, uh, maybe theology 101. Just put the word, like, un before any word, and that describes God. Like, uncontrollable, unpredictable, unconditional. You can do nothing to earn his love, and there is no way to out-sin his love. Like, you think it's going to be one or the other. No, it's, it's both. You can't earn it. Nothing in you can earn it. And nothing you can do can out-sin it. 
Grace is the undeserved, unmerited, there's more words with un in front of it, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Um, Philip Yancey, in his most well-known book, he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? So if even just something this morning just sparks something in you that you just want to dig deeper, that's a great, very readable, approachable book. Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? He says this, God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. Let that sink for a moment. God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. Um, have you ever asked somebody in your life this question, um, why do you love me? You could be asking it um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, or you could be very, very serious. Why do you love me? Well, why, why, why would you care for me? Like, like what is it? Can you tell me what it is about me? Because maybe you can't see it. Why, why do you love me? What's the fine print here? What's your real motive? Grace says that God's answer to the question is, I love you, ready? Because I love you. Moses says exactly that to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land after the Exodus in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8. Look at this, it's on the screen. Moses says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you catch it in there? Why does God love them? Because he loves them. Like, this is our God. This is grace. And the more we see that and more than see it, the more we, we feel it, the more transformative that truth is in your lives. I, I always say this. It's the basic truths that will grow you and transform you in your life, not the complicated ones. He loves you because he loves you. Uh, there, there's more to this first, first point. Um, grace says that God is on a mission. Grace says God is on the move, and he's working, and he's always working. And Paul sums up his mission like this in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In that single verse, Paul connected Christmas to Easter. Did you see it? In one verse, he connects the manger to the cross, the incarnation to the atonement. He came into the world, just celebrated that a month ago. Some of you still have your Christmas lights up. I'm not judging you, um, uh, but that's recent history. And he came in the world, why? To save sinners. How? By giving himself for us. I'm telling you, it gets better. Grace. Uh, there's a woman named Dorothy Sayers. She was an author. She was a um, good friend of C.S. Lewis in England. 
and she writes a breathtaking summary of just who Jesus is and what he did. And, and, I, and it's a little lengthy, but I want to read it. It was actually, this quote was in a book on apathy, how many Christians, their love grow cold. And what do we do with that when our affections for the Lord grow cold? And this is what Dorothy Sayer writes. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work, and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Now, we may call that doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. Pay attention here. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human fertility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. God's mission of grace carries on and when we dwell upon grace grace leads you to him Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane who died at the young age of 29 has one quote I think about all the time I think this is good advice for us in our everyday life for every look at yourself take 10 looks at Christ remember that this week for every look at yourself take 10 looks at Christ that's number one what grace says about God let's go to number two what grace says about you. The end of verse 15 says that, again, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, comma, of whom I am the foremost. You see, this passage first says something about God, but it second does say something about us. And last week, um, we looked at a passage that contained one of Paul's lists. Do you remember that? One of the infamous lists, this list of 14 sins, 14 vices that often get uh, plucked out and, and carried because for some reason we're drawn to these lists. And these are the sins that Paul describes. They are symptoms of a spiritual heart disease, the behavior of those who live in rebellion to God. But like I said last week, and I think it's worthwhile saying again, the whole point of that list is not to condemn the world for how bad it is, but to boast about how amazing God's saving grace is. Because now he segues to share his own story. Paul goes from talking out there to now bringing it in-house. To lift himself up as an example for all to see, and he gives him a list of his own. Verse 13, though formerly I, me, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Uh, many of you know Paul's story recorded in Scripture. It's not that he just, it's not simply that he didn't believe in Jesus, but he was pouring himself out to keep others from believing in Jesus and following him. But here's the real, um, the real scary part of it, is that he thought all the while he was doing the right thing. Like, like that's what he means in the phrase when he writes that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He thought he was on God's side. And he was relying on the law and the own goodwill and the strength to be the basis for his assurance and salvation. You know, the scariest part of being lost is when you don't realize you're lost. 
And you're living your days just thinking, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I'm on the right track. I've figured this out. But Paul never downplays sin. I don't want to communicate that either. He would actually be accused of that often from the Pharisees or from the Jewish leaders in his ministry that he didn't care about sin. He, he never makes light of it. Uh, he, he never dampens the danger of it. He never lowers the damage that it does to ourselves, it does to our children, it does to others around us. The separation that it creates with God, first and foremost. Uh, Paul never downloaded it, I think in part because Jesus never downplayed it. He never downplayed sin in his ministry. He interacted with sinners, but that should never be confused with affirming sinners. He never did it. Because sin kills. Jesus would not love us if he did not communicate that to us, that it kills, it separates, it destroys, and we're blinded to it. And so, yeah, Paul has a list. And you know what? We all have a list. You got a list. And I got a list. And what does grace say about us? It tells us we're lost without it. It tells us that is the only solution, the only antidote to our rebellion. Nothing else works. It's been tried already. There was nothing in Paul that drew God to him because sin separates. And so Paul's story doesn't downplay sin. Hear me, it elevates grace that overpowers his sin. Paul does not downplay sin. It elevates grace that overpowers his sin. It was the undeserved, unmerited favor of God in his life. And whether you grew up in church and you were always been around it and you have a family of a rich legacy of faith that you grew up in, or if you grew up outside the church, and perhaps maybe even if you profess faith to this day, to this day you always felt a little bit of an outsider within church circles. There's always a sense of discomfort of even just being here, maybe. And maybe you feel like you don't know the lingo. Uh, and the songs, everybody talks about the songs they love, and from childhood you don't have those memories. Uh, maybe you don't know the ins and outs of Christian culture. God's grace says it levels us all out. It, it, in a sense, it doesn't matter. You know what? Paul felt like an outsider. He's the only apostle who didn't walk with Christ. I don't think Paul ever felt like in with the in crowd. And so all he had to draw on was just the grace of God. And you know what? That's all he needed. And when that moment comes, when those lights go on in your mind, in your brain, in your heart of, of, of God's grace, and we're all at the foot of the cross on even ground, Together, we can all sing the hymn from 1910 by Julia Johnston. Some of you perhaps have heard it. I, if there's ever a time for me to sing it, like I'm tempted by this one, but I'm still not going to. But I'm going to have the lyrics behind me. So sing it to yourself. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Paul's story is a prototype, you see. It is a story of salvation that casts a vision of what could be. That, that's part of why he's writing it here. He's, he's giving a pattern of every story of salvation that will come after. So I don't know if you have any Shark Tank fans in the room. Shark Tank is, if you don't know it, it is a show where aspiring entrepreneurs and inventors give a presentation to a panel of five investors. And those investors decide whether to invest in their company 
or say no thank you. And the presentations that I think are especially unique are the ones when a man or woman, excuse me, come into the shark tank with no business, no sales, they have one product. It's called the prototype. This is all I got. This, it's not being manufactured. I haven't been able to market it. I got an idea. And I've created this. It's the original model of something that future products would be patterned after. It's an example of something that casts a vision of what could be. And if the vision is compelling, the investors are interested. Uh, so one quick example on the show. It's one from one of the early seasons, I think 2010 or 2011. A guy came in with a prototype of a technology that could lock and unlock your front door uh, of your house from your phone. This is only 2010. And he shows an example in the Shark Tank. You get within range. You just have your phone in your pocket. You press a button on top of the lock without having to put a key in, and it opens. And the five investors were like, wow. <laughs> and then he says, that's not all, sharks. I could text a code to someone else's phone, and if I'm out of town, I need somebody to go to my house and do something, bring the mail in, water some flowers, do something, I could text them a one-time code. They can go to my house and unlock the door. And they were like, no way. <laughs> and in 2023, that would impress no one. <laughs> it's commonplace to open and lock and close locks and doors from your phone, but just 12 years ago, it was like they saw a miracle. And not one, but two investors jumped in and combined on an offer, and that product turned into what is now a company called Kiva, which is a massive company. But the guy came into the tank, he had no sales, he had no products except this one. He had a proof of concept. He had a prototype that casted a vision of what could be. This is all I got. That's what Paul is doing here. He's holding up God's grace and saying, this is all I got. And it saved me. Even me, he writes. Casting a vision of what could be. You see, every believer's testimony is different on the surface, but it's the same at the core. Uh, there's no such thing as a non-miraculous story of salvation. There's no such thing as a boring testimony. Because every testimony is a work of God's grace overcoming human sin. Like, like use that phrase. Like, can I hear your testimony? Can I hear your story of how God's grace overcame your sin? Right after the 11 a.m. service today, we have membership interviews of those applying for membership. And, and, and member interviews sounds more intimidating than it is. We just want to hear their story. And that's the first question of the interview. Tell us your story of how God's grace overcame your sin. Like, praise God. And yet, the, on the surface, there's all different versions. And God is a creative God. And he uses all different means to overcome people's sin. Often ways in that we don't expect, because grace overflowing, remember? It goes places you didn't think it'd go. It goes to people you never thought it could reach. On Sunday, January 6th, 1850, going back in time, there was a 15-year-old young man who was walking up a hill in Colchester, England, called Hyeth Hill. And he was in the middle of a blizzard. And from what I know, it does not blizzard often in England. And he couldn't get up the hill. It prevented him from walking up the hill. So he got rerouted onto a side street that led to a small Methodist church on Artillery Street in Colchester. And so he went in this church really just to get out of the blizzard more than anything else. There's about a dozen people in the church on that Sunday morning. 
the minister didn't even show up. Presumably for the same reason. He couldn't get there. Couldn't make it in the weather. So about 12 people there. One of the members, a local shoemaker, went up to the pulpit, opened the Bible, and read Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. The shoemaker did not even pronounce the words correctly. He was pretty inarticulate. But he closed the Bible and said, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, Look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. And then the man followed up in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend and I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. The shoemaker then saw this 15-year-old boy said, Young man, you look very miserable. Look to Jesus Christ. And the 15-year-old, now grown, recalling this story, says, There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of the precious blood of Christ. This is the story, the testimony of Charles Spurgeon, who would go on to be the pastor of one of the largest churches in London in the 19th century, whose sermons and writings have been distributed worldwide, used by God to awaken and strengthen faith, including mine. And if you've been here, you know I quote him like once or twice a month. The elders put me on a quote. I can't do more than that. You know, I'll do it every week. But, you know, once a month I'll, I'll handle it. But God used an inarticulate five-minute sermon from a shoemaker during a blizzard. Because this is God's grace in your life, overflowing. Everybody's story is different, and you don't need to know the day or the time. You don't need a dramatic story. It might not be dramatic to you, but grace overcoming human sin is a miracle every time. It's a miracle in your children's life every time when they profess Christ. And grace reminds us that it's not on your best day when you obeyed the most and so impressed God that Jesus said, yeah, I'll die for him. I'll draft him. I want him on my team. It's not the day that Jesus saved you. It's the day, and I would hate to even have you bring this to your own mind right now. It's on your worst day. What is your worst day? The day you felt the most shame over your own sin. The day, as you think about it, are the thoughts and actions. You couldn't believe you were capable of that. You're actually still a little haunted by it. It's on that day that Jesus said, I'll die for her, and I'll die for him. They are who I came for. All right, one left. What grace says about God, what grace says about you, and now number three, what grace says about others. 
What I mean by this is that once grace has transformed you, God now entrusts you with the gospel to live your life in such a way where it serves as an example to others. Other people now matter in a whole different way. Now other people exist not to get something from them, but to love them for the glory of God. It's a massive shift in your day-to-day life. Other people exist not to get something from them, but to give love to them for the glory of God. This is the result of grace overflowing. Again, get that image in your head. When something overflows, it spills out onto other things. When a river overflows, the area around it now gets flooded. When a believer experiencing the overflowing abundance of God's grace, other people in the area around them get soaked Flooded with love and a picture of what transformation can look like. Grace now sends you places. It sends you to people. Grace gives you a mission like nothing else can. That's what Paul writes, verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were in to believe in him for eternal life. Here's what grace does. The purpose it had in sending Christ now shapes our purpose in being sent in this world. And salvation is not just a single decision. I can say, yes, I profess faith there, and now I can go living my life guilt-free as I was before. No, it transforms everything. Nothing is normal now. There's no normal days in the kingdom of God. It directs your calling to live as an example. And grace says about others, You're to love them. Love them enough to shine the light of Christ to them. So here's how we'll finish. Um, We are in the final week of January, if you didn't know. And each January, for the last now four years, the members of Grace do an initiative together called Daily Member Prayer. And each morning, about 6 a.m., I send an email to the whole membership with a list of six to seven names along with prayer prompts. And so through the month of January, all of our members pray for one another by name to begin the new year. And each year I choose a different book to provide a quote or an excerpt from in that day's email. And this year I chose the book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. Subtitle, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. And so each day along with the prayer prompts that I prayed for each member, along with additional things that I know about each member that I can pray for, I also prayed that in 2023, they would experience a breakthrough as it relates to the fear of man in their life and the fear of others. And however that manifests in your life, that this year you'd be a breakthrough, you'd experience a breakthrough of the fear of others that consumes us. Because when we are free from fearing others, we are then free to love others. And this was the quote that was in the email this past Wednesday, January 25th. It'll be on the screen. Ed writes, Who are other people? They take on three different shapes. Enemies, neighbors, and family. What is our duty to them? Love. Love may take a different form with each group, but our duty is summed up as love. We love enemies by surprising them with our service toward them. We love neighbors by treating them like our family. And we love the body of Christ, our true brothers and sisters, in such a way that the world and spiritual powers are stunned by our oneness. This is grace. This is what grace is. This is what grace does. Grace says about God, about you, 
and about others. And as you walk out this morning, I want you to remember that your story can be a prototype. An example of what transformation can look like. A proof of concept of grace that casts a vision for the world to see. And so, yeah, it's no wonder then, after sharing his story, that Paul finishes his thought in verse 17 with an outburst of praise because, once again, there are moments when just periods and sentences and commas will no longer do. He almost can't help it. And so that's how we'll close this morning. Verse 17, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for grace, Lord. Keep us from trying to overcomplicate it. Give us the eyes to see the simplicity of it and the power it can do in our lives, the way it sees, allows us to see you for who you really are and the way that it shapes our mission each day from here on out. And it's in your name, Father, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Let's rise together and sing before we take the Lord's Supper.